Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living author historian interview series, and we have an excellent program about history, the optimism of the Enlightenment, the role of Huynhams, and if you still don't know, we're going to be talking about Gulliver's Travels. You're going to want to hear this, but thank you so much for listening. And the music we're listening to is part of the Smithsonian Folkways recording of Woody Guthrie singing Hard Traveling, of course. As I say, we have got a great guest today who, after having him on the program now for a fourth time, I always look forward to him being back. I'm going to to introduce him in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 678th episode, and I spoke to NFL legend, a member of the only team in NFL history to be undefeated, and very entertaining guest, Larry Zonka. Two weeks ago, I had another great conversation with author and Smithsonian associate, Carol Adrian about her new book, Healing a Divided Nation. All wonderful stuff. If you missed those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. And if you leave a review, we'll read it at the end of each show. So please leave some reviews for us. You can do that at Apple Podcasts. Very simple. Smithsonian Associate and popular returning guest Clay Jenkinson will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes for more details. I always enjoy speaking with Clay Jenkinson because I learn so much. And for your emails to me after Clay appears on the show, you absolutely agree. Clay is funny, too, and I laugh right along with him. He is a serious guy, but when it comes to history, he's a lecturer. He is a Jeffersonian. In fact, Clay Jenkinson was the main commentator for Ken Burns' PBS documentary on Thomas Jefferson. Clay Jenkinson is a CNN TV personality, and we have Clay Jenkinson today. Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels is often regarded as a children's book, but only by people who have never read it through. Swift was filled with savage indignation at the problems in the human character. According to our guest today, Clay Jenkinson, Gulliver's Travels is a work of genius, a witty, enchanting, and unrelenting critique of the optimism of the Enlightenment. Join me today for a wonderful conversation with humanity scholar Clay Jenkinson as Clay sorts out the meaning of Gulliver's travels and leads us on a journey into the dark recesses of the severest satirist in the English language. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better show on radio and podcast, Smithsonian Associate Clay Jenkinson. Clay Jenkinson, always great to talk to you. Welcome back to the program. Hope you're well. Happy Thanksgiving. All of those things. I'm excited to to be back in touch, though. Uh, me too. And you know, Thanksgiving is far and away my favorite holiday of the year. So it's great to be talking with you on this on this week. You know, uh, Thanksgiving is about American abundance, and if America stands for anything. It stands for abundance. You know, I always enjoy – I always love talking to you because you do have that perspective. And one perspective, I I got to tell you, we're going to talk about Gulliver's Travels today. And I – this one – because I've gotten to know you a little bit over the – this one caught me off guard. I, I really – 
in in a very good way. And so, of course, your presentation is coming up at Smithsonian Associates um, on the uh, the sixth of December. And the title of your presentation is Gulliver's Travels, a Satire, Not Just for Children. I want to get into all of that with you. And and I love I love Gulliver's Travels. But why don't you begin by telling us briefly about your uh, upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation? Well, you got it exactly right. So everyone everyone knows of Gulliver's Travels. You know, he's this tiny little person amongst the Brobdingnagians, and he's this giant amongst the Lilliputians. And that's sort of where it usually ends, Paul. But the fact is that this is a much bigger book than that. And it's actually a pretty dark examination of English and European culture at the time. It's a satire. And in fact, in the in English, we have the word Swiftian from Jonathan Swift to, to really designate a certain type of satire. So you know, we, we all have this kind of sense of the book, but if you reread it, it's one of the most charming, um, delightful, and troubling books in the canon of, of English literature. And I have to say, I just love it. I read it at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, and there's always something new in it. And so I'm very eager to, um, to gather a group of, of Smithsonian associates and to make the case for the book and also to show them some of its particularities, which I think are, are, are astounding. So just one more thing about that. You know, he, he, he said that he had something called savage indignation, <laughs> that he liked Paul and he liked, liked Carol and he liked Jim, but he didn't like man. He didn't like <laughs> humankind very much. And it's like tribes very much. And so he has the, when he looks at humans, he says, oh, Aristotle said we're a rational animal. But it's not true. We are, he said, capax rationes. We are capable of rationality, but we almost never actually exhibit it. And that's where all the satire comes. Yeah, I dug it out again, too, looked it over in, in anticipation of our conversation. I definitely am going to reread it with a whole new uh, you know, a whole new set of eyes, really, Clay Jacobson. And, and I know our audience will get all of this from you too, but let's let's jump into it and talk about it because you know you mentioned Jonathan Swift, of course, the author of Gulliver's Travels. You 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 say that it's a work of genius, and it's this critique on the optimism of the period, and the period really that you you refer to is the is that of enlightenment. And I wonder if you well, first of all, tell us maybe remind our audience, me too, what what in the Enlightenment period is, and then what you mean by this critique of the optimism of that time. That's such a great question. Thank you. So the Enlightenment was this intellectual movement and, and, and a social movement. Dates from around 1680 with the work of John Locke uh, and Isaac Newton in England, and it goes all the way through to about 1826. I use that date arbitrarily as the death of Thomas Jefferson, but it was a, a kind of a pan-European movement that had its strongest position in Scotland and in France, and it believed in human reason, uh, progress, uh, that humans were up to the business of self-government, believed in freedom of expression, uh, reform. Diderot created the first great encyclopedia at the heart of the Enlightenment, and in it he said everything must be re-examined. Nothing should be just accepted. And, you know, whatever received ideas we come upon, we have to examine them and ask, are they rational? Are they good for 
humanity? Can they, can they be improved upon? And so this was this time where all these philosophes like Voltaire and Rousseau and Dr. Johnson and so on were drinking coffee, which was a new drug. And they were all like hepped up on caffeine and writing dictionaries and writing encyclopedias and, and creating taxonomies of clouds and, and minerals. And Linnaeus was doing his binomial classification of plants and so on. It was just this kind of wildly energetic period. And it gave us things like due process and trial by jury and uh, the Fifth Amendment, which you don't have to incriminate yourself. And so it's a very broad brush, but this this movement really believed that that humans were equal to the challenge of living with dignity and um, reasonableness and justice. So that's the Enlightenment. And when Swift looked at this, he thought, have you looked around? I mean, have you really really looked around much? Because that's not how it works at all. It's like craziness and irrationality and, and, and danger and, 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 and tyranny and torture and, and passion. And so he says that has to be factored into this equation, too. And so Gulliver's Travels is sort of this wonderfully imaginative challenge to the what he regarded as the bland and complacent principles of the Enlightenment. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life? And everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We, of course, are with Clay Jenkinson. Clay Jenkinson is a longtime guest here of the program, a longtime Smithsonian associate. We'll be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates coming up December 6th. The topic, uh, the title of Clay Jenkinson's presentation is Gulliver's Travels, a satire not just for children. We're going to put links up to where our audience can find out more about Clay Jenkinson at Smithsonian Associates, as well as Clay Jenkinson's work on the Jefferson Hour, uh, his podcast that that he hosts, hosts all of his other great work around the world uh, teaching about Thomas Jefferson and uh, all of these other fantastic courses, Clay Jenkinson. It's really just always a pleasure to talk to you and and learn. And and I learned, I as I say, I I, I have you know through school I read Gulliver's Travels. Uh, I I picked up on this term. I learned more about it. I think it's pronounced Whinnam. I, I believe it reminded me of kind of a a neighing horse sound, and I'm not sure if that's exactly right, but maybe tell us, and we'll put this in our show notes about Wynnum, and maybe you'll just correct me about the exact pronunciation, but tell us about their role in Gulliver's Travels, because I, I was fascinated to learn about that. And and then Gulliver, he returns from his final voyage, and he sleeps in the barn with horses, which actually does have a parallel with this Wynnum Creature, so maybe tie all this together for us, because I'm not doing a very good job of this right now, Clay Jenkinson. <laughs> no, you've done a great job. You pronounce Wyndham in the way that that we do. Um, so, first of all, there are four books in Gulliver's Travels. Book one 
he winds up on this island where he's a giant and everybody else is uh, is puny. Book two, he's up on another island where he's puny and everyone is a giant. Book three, he winds up in this kind of zany uh, academy of intellectuals who are so brainy that they don't know how to live. And then in book four, the, the culminating and, and darkest book, he winds up in this land of horses where horses are rational and civilized, but the humans, the humanoids, the primates are bestial and savage and disgusting and, and, and repulsive. And so when he reach the, gets to the Widdoms, he, he has to look in the mirror of humanity, Paul. What he sees is not a person in buckled shoes and a, and a wig and a waistcoat, but he sees a, a, a savage primitive bestial creature, a primate that is uh, uh, violent and sexually rapacious and, um, and incredibly selfish and aggressive. And, and, and this is Swift's own um, pathology, but kind of wedded to excrement, just like a, a just a, a foul creature. And so this is, this is sort of Gulliver looking into the, the dark mirror of humanity. Meanwhile, the horses are reasonable and civilized and, and interesting. So here's how you actually pronounce it. <laughs> but no one can tell you. But he was trying to he was trying to create in 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 our Roman alphabet the equivalency of what a horse sounds. So <laughs> but we say win because you know I'm not gonna lecture like that for the Smithsonian. <laughs> Associates, and so when he this fourth voyage, where he's got a, you know, we all are, we're all asked in the humanities to look in the mirror. What are we really like? You know, you and I, each of us has a narrative about himself, who we are. We're all the heroes of our own stories. We we have a kind of a bright, positive narrative about who we are and what humanity is. And Swift says, look deeper. There's also, and he doesn't doesn't want us to dwell in the darkness, but he says there's also this other nature of humanity, you know, and he didn't live to see this, but Auschwitz and Hiroshima and Guantanamo and Milai and so on, that this too is humanity, this, this id, this, this kind of Freudian uh, dark id creature. And so when he has this experience in book four, he basically goes insane. He's rescued and he comes back to England. But as you say, he won't, he won't have sex with his wife. He won't even be in the same room because he's offended by her odor. He won't have any relations with the children because they're beasts. And he sleeps in the barn with his horses. Of course, the horses aren't reasonable. The horses are horses. So this is part of the madness of Gulliver. But I think the, the point he's trying to, Swift is trying to make is that compared to humans, even horses are better. <laughs> so well, and I appreciate you neighing for us. I mean, honestly, that is a treat. Just uh, you can do that anytime. Really, it's a fantastic addition to our, our, our interviews. Always, Clay Jacobson. <laughs> yeah, this idea of him being tied down on the beach, you know, with these these Lilliputian ropes. That's I think what jumps out to so many about this story. You, of course, are very much uh, a Jeffersonian, and and you you teach. Uh, Jeffersonian, uh, I, uh, you, you educate us on on Jeffersonian practices and and who he was, who Thomas Jefferson was, and he he was somebody who really 
believe in this rational utopia, I suppose, here on Earth. And so what what does it mean? What does this reference mean then of Gulliver waking up on the beach? Is as a Jeffersonian, what how does that tie together? Because I know that you you do talk about this in relation to the world of of uh Jeffersonian uh, ideals. Right. So Jefferson is a creature of, of the Enlightenment, and he's a he's sort of a Pollyanna of the founding generation in America. He, he, he believed in the perfectibility of man. He was kind of a semi-utopian. He had in mind kind of an agrarian, utopian society in America. And people around Jefferson, like Hamilton and, and Adams and even George Washington, they too said, have you looked around? Because that's not going to work. You know, people... People are interesting. This is going to be a great experiment in government, but there have to be some controls. There have to be some restraints because you don't want to just turn humanity loose. And so this is what Swift was really reacting to, just as Voltaire and Candide reacted to the bland um, optimism of the era. But in book one, so everyone remembers book one. Let me just say before we go on, Paul, that, that Gulliver should probably never be taught to children again. Because, of course, it's fun. You know, a, 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 a famous philosopher said anything miniature is delightful. And so, like in the, in book one, we have a little woman, um, a, a seamstress, um, inserting an invisible thread into an invisible needle. And we have all these kind of lovely little, um, you know, this is about size and dimensions and proportionality, and it's it's fabulous. And and Swift did all the math and got it exactly right. So Gulliver winds up on this island. He's all passed out from his ordeal at sea. And then the, these little people come and they see him. And so they don't know what to make of him, but it's certainly going to be trouble. And so they tie him down. They peg him down on the ground and he wakes up. And, that, and so that's probably one of the most famous images and metaphors in all of literature. People that have never really even thought about Jonathan Swift know that that trope. And by the way, there is a, one of the worst Hollywood films ever made features Jack Black as Gulliver. And if you if you want to just realize what can go wrong in a pop culture, watch that one. On the other hand, Ted Danson starred in a four part series on Gulliver's that that is, I think, absolutely outstanding. So Ted Danson of Cheers turns out to be a, a really marvelous Gulliver in a, in a in a great show. So so this metaphor is really important, and Jefferson used this metaphor. So he clearly had read Swift and said, you know, America at times is like. Gulliver, it's tied down with, he said, all we have to do is, 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 is burst from our chains. Humans have to burst out of their tether and, and reclaim their giant status in the world. So that, you know, that's the one piece of Gulliver that has been universally um, adopted um, by everybody. But then Gulliver is released. He becomes, of course, an amazing foreign policy tool for Lilliput in their battle against um, the other, the Blefuscu nation. And then there's this, of course, there's this famous awful moment. Swift loved bathroom humor, but the, the, while Gulliver is there, the castle starts on fire and there's no way they don't have a fire department. So he's been drinking heavily that day from <laughs> ale. And so you, you can imagine how he puts out the fire. And then here's what's so great about it. He puts out the fire by, you know, urinating on the castle. And then, but then he's astounded that the queen is offended. He says, What's wrong with her? I mean, how could she be offended by this? I, I I saved the castle, and so that kind of naivete that that Swift builds into Gulliver's character. He's always surprised by something 
that as a reader, you're not at all surprised by. That's the genius in this. You know, Swift was able to not just describe all of this, but he put it in the persona of this kind of benevolent, um, naive, um, optimistic person, Gulliver. And in the course of the four voyages, poor Gulliver is beaten around so much that by the end, he just goes insane. Clay Jenkinson, I, I so appreciate your time. I, I I do always enjoy talking to you. I especially enjoy the way in which you bring this all back and and focus it a little bit on today. And and so I wondered if you would just tell us a little bit about maybe juxtapose the age of enlightenment with kind of today's environmental problems, the social issues that we're facing, uh, you know, how the optimism of the period of enlightenment might might reflect on the current crises that that we're facing and how do we do the right thing how do we do the enlightened thing i suppose today before we all just you know kind of give up or burn up or burn out well that's of course the the zillion dollar question and, and as a humanity scholar i always want to try um carefully to see what these great texts whether it's the Iliad or King Lear or uh, Pride and Prejudice, or in this case, Gulliver's Travels, what, how they reflect upon us, because they're only universal if they speak to us for our own situation. So, for example, you just have, I, I won't go into detail because, because it's too excruciating, but imagine what Jonathan Swift would say about American politics today. You have on President Trump, on the other hand, President Biden, these are octogenarians in, in the most vibrant uh, country in the world. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the corruptions and the paralysis of, of, the, of Congress, uh, you, you know, all of us know this story. This is, the, this is the only story we get to think about these days. But imagine what a brilliant satirist would say about this moment. Or, or how about this, that the, the depending on, on your on, on where you are on this debate, but the planet is in trouble. You know, whether the planet will be extinguished is another question, but clearly everybody gets it, that the planet is in trouble. So we just had a, a midterm election. And when you look at the things that were, they were talking about, and by the way, we spent $16.9 billion on this election, $16.9 billion at a time when the National has a budget of about 200 million. So 16.9 billion. And what did we talk about? We didn't talk about global climate change and the threat to humanity itself and the planet. We talked about nutty things. And so if you had someone like Swift, it's a field day for a a savage satirist like that. And so here's what Swift would, would want us to take away from all this, Paul. Humility. Given the fact that we are so imperfect, that we are not that rational creature, we are capable of it, but we often fall short. Given that, given that that's the nature of us, we need to humble ourselves and we need to be, we need to think about the laws of unintended consequences. And we need to think about where we really are on the chain of being. And do we really belong in this kind of semi-angelic place where we think that we're more interesting than an antelope or more interesting than a, than a bee or more interesting than a, 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 a zebra. And, and Swift wants us to humble ourselves and realize that 
it's way more complicated than that. And humans have really oversold themselves. And, and, and that's what, that's what gives us hubris. And so I've just been talking about J. Robert Oppenheimer. So Oppenheimer is one of the most brilliant physicists in the world. He creates a weapon of mass destruction after which the world can never be the same. And you think, did you, did you think this through? I mean, did you really, did humans really think through what crossing that threshold would bring to us? And so, so that's the point you see is that we are what we are and, and we can get better. But the only way we can get better is, is, in, in, is two different things. On the one hand, we need to educate ourselves much more thoroughly and in the humanities than we have. And on the other hand, we need to gain a new kind of humility. And, and just one last thing about that. You want to see the worst case of this. It's not in Gulliver's Travels. It's in his famous pamphlet, A Modest Proposal, where you have a, a rationalist saying, well, the problem of all the starving children in Ireland can be solved if we just sell them on the market as food. And so there's an example of how reason can be completely hijacked by madness. Um, and that pamphlet became a worldwide bestseller because Swift was able to remind us of how imperfect our social solutions are and often inhumane to the problems that we find ourselves facing. Fascinating stuff. Clay Jenkinson's been our guest today. Clay Jenkinson is a humanities scholar, a historian, an author, a presenter. Presenting coming up here, uh, December 6th, though, right after Thanksgiving on the subject of Gulliver's Travels, a satire not just for children. We're going to put links up to where audience can find out more about Clay Jenkinson's upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. I'm going to go find that Ted Danson link to Clay Jenkinson and put that in our notes for everybody to to zero in on because I think that sounds like a good one to to pay attention to in anticipation of your pre- of your presentation. But I just can't recommend this enough. I, I, I think it will just open many, many eyes about uh, Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Tw- Th- Swift, and all of this work that you've done. Thank you for your time. Uh, again, my best to you. I always just enjoy talking to you. I, I learned so much, and uh, I know our audience will too. So happy Thanksgiving, sir, and we will see you December 6th coming right around the corner. But thanks, Clay Jenkinson. And, and uh, as I say this to you all the time, I look forward to you coming back. Yeah, me too. I love our conversations, Paul. And just this much more, uh, happy holidays to everyone. Of course, I look forward to talking with as many people as possible um, for the, the Gulliver program. And yes, you should watch the Ted Danson series. It's the most accurate depiction ever of uh, Swift's work in Gulliver's Travels. But if you want to fall asleep after that big meal on Thanksgiving, just uh, order up Jack Black and you will realize <laughs> why American civilization is at the very nadir. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's great. Clay Jenkinson, always so great to hear from you. Thank you for your time. Um, and uh, we will see you again soon, sir. Thank you. Talk to you soon. My thanks to Clay Jenkinson for joining us today. My thanks to you, of course, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on our Smithsonian Associates programming. Thanks for joining us today, either online or on the radio. You can always find more at notold-better.com. Be well and be safe. And I'm saying that to you each and every episode because I want us to think long and hard about eliminating assault rifles. Only members of the military need these weapons. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, school. Let's do better. 
Let's eliminate assault rifles. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast, part of the Smithsonian Associates Interview Series. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week. Today's show was edited for Ling. To hear the full interview, please check out our website for this episode and all episodes at notold-better.com or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and be sure to leave a five-star review or comment wherever you get your podcasts. Our Twitter feed is Not Old Better, and we're on Instagram at Not Old Better too. The Not Old Better Show is a production of NOBS Studios. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and I hope you'll join me again next time to talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. I've been hitting that 66 way down the road With a heavy load and a worried mind Looking for a woman that's hard to find And I've been having some hard traveling long